Greetings. I'm Raman Chada, founder of the Junto Institute. Welcome to Flourishing Together, where we have inspiring conversations with people who are becoming infinitely better at who they are and what they do. I'm excited to have our guests on this episode. First up is Christy Zulke, a serial entrepreneur and founder and CEO of KnowledgeHound, a Junto alumnus company. After Christy, we speak with Kane Grau, an accomplished tech entrepreneur and executive who is currently EVP of Sales at TradeRev. We'll begin with Christy, who will always be special to us at Junto for being the first woman founder who went through our program. KnowledgeHound is the second company that Christy founded, and it's a search-driven analytics platform that enables companies to find answers and tell stories with their customer survey data. Founded in 2013, KnowledgeHound currently has about 25 people and is based in Chicago. You can learn more at KnowledgeHound.com. Christy and her team graduated from our program in 2015 and has remained active with both our alumni network and in our Junto Women effort. She's a visible tech entrepreneur in Chicago who is a connector at heart. I appreciate the many introductions she's made to us at Junto over the years, both for companies and for mentors. She has an inspiring level of ambition and drive that is so finely balanced with warmth and a playful personality. You'll get a little peek into that during our conversation when we talk about dreams and imagination. Welcome, Christy. Awesome to have you. Thanks for having me. So we're going to start as we do with so many Junto sessions with our emotion wheel. So this morning I am feeling eager. So it's the Tuesday after Memorial Day and I had three days to think about my business. <laughs> so I'm, I'm ready to have a great week and already have been diving into looking at all of our sales deals that we closed lost in the first two quarters of the year and thinking through, okay, what could we have done better? What could we do different? So I'm just feeling eager. And I think that's in a positive eager. I'm also very eager and also quite amused. So I almost had the opposite of you. I spent two days not thinking about <laughs> our business, um, which I needed to after a pretty intense week. Also very amused at that fact, hmm. uh, because I'm one of those that I imagine you might be able to relate that always thinking about it. Always. Yes. And, yeah. And so I'm, I'm very pleased that that should be another one that I was able to do this uh, at a time when I really needed to. That's great. So we're going to kick off with your first recollection of leadership. What do you recall from the first time you realized that there was leadership in action? I was reflecting on this and I think I could probably talk about things that when I was like I don't know, five or seven and being the one to initiate going to the park or being the one to initiate what we're going to play. But I think really where like true leadership in the sense of getting a group of people to think in a vision or a strategy that I really set forth was when I was in high school. It sounds super nerdy and it was. I was a state officer for our marketing club called DECA. <laughs> there were seven of us that were like state officers and my responsibility was business development. So I was going out to different businesses in the community to talk to them about what we were doing at DECA and asking for donations and help. And then also asking people to come and judge our competitions. 
And the reason why I really link that back to leadership, though, is that we had thousands of members in DECA throughout the state of Wisconsin. I was the one kind of saying, like, this is the business club that is going to help us all get into college. I think of myself as when I was in high school, I was very nerdy, but I hung out with like the cool kids, but I was like a nerdy, cool kid. I see that pattern a lot with high schoolers, especially is that a leadership sometimes can be a popularity thing where you get people to follow you, but it takes some kind of nerdiness to be a leader, I think too. That's a great story, very inspiring, and I might want to talk with you offline about some things related to that. So do you still consider yourself nerdy? Yes. But with the cool kids, or do you consider yourself a cool kid amongst nerds? Definitely a part of the cool kids, but I'm a nerd of the cool kids. Now that we're adults, like it really, I don't really think of ourselves as separate as I did in high school. Um, that just was because of more of our social settings. I think it's pretty interesting to see that. I mean, I can come off as quote unquote cool, but I'm such a nerd. So you brought up the word imagination. Uh, and one thing that I know about you is that you believe in dreaming big. In fact, you presented on that very topic at the Junto retreat about a year and a half ago. Share with us some of your reflections and beliefs on dreaming big. So yeah, dreaming big has always been something that I think I inherited a little bit, just I have a lot of entrepreneurs in my family. And I think that is a very natural entrepreneurial mindset is dreaming big. And since I had such a vivid imagination when I was little, and I still do, I think I really broke down any kind of barriers of saying like, why can't this be true? You know, I think of autonomous driving vehicles as of course, like, of course that's going to happen. It can happen in the next five years very easily, but it's like the social norms that need to change and the infrastructure that needs to change for that to happen. But of course it can be true. Uh, whereas I, I interact with other folks who think quite differently than I do, which are more constraint-based and it's not negative at all. It's just different way of thinking of like, no, autonomous driving vehicles, like it's never going to happen. Like it's too impossible. The feat is too large. And so I think mean, naturally, genetically, I just, my mind goes to dreaming without barriers. I think that came through and when I was in high school, I, I have a journal that I kept all my business ideas in and I still have it today and I still write down my business ideas. I've just always been able to recognize a problem and say, oh, well, wouldn't it be great if we could do this or that? And I even remember actually one of, it wasn't necessarily a business idea, but it was most certainly a, an idea, which was how could we create kind of like a conveyor belt where you'd put your car on and it would take me all the way to Wisconsin. And that essentially is an autonomous driving vehicle. I guess I'd tell Elon Musk I already had his idea when I was in high school. <laughs> and I really thought that could be true. I don't know. I think that, that dreaming big is just dreaming without barriers. So what dreams do you have today? Oh, gosh, I have so many. The one that's most immediate is with my current business with Knowledge Hound. Knowledge Hound is about unleashing data and democratizing it throughout the world. And to me, that's a multi-billion dollar business. And we're not even close to that today. I have grand visions of what Knowledge Hound can be. Like some days can be really hard because there are so many practical barriers to realizing that dream from, is the market ready for that? How do you get other people to come along with that dream? How do you get other people to give you money for that dream? <laughs> so it's not easy to get there, but most certainly that's my dream. And it's sometimes hard to think that you won't get there, but what's 
the damage and dreaming big, I guess. So you brought up some of the practical uh, matters that come up that sometimes cause obstacles or roadblocks to us achieving our dreams, right? And that happens to everybody. We know that. And in your case, one of them has been the fact that in order for you to achieve this dream you have of this large company, you needed to go out as a tech founder and find investors to help fund you and believe in you and support you. Yet that comes with its own set of challenges. And up to this point, I haven't um, had any of our founders who've raised similar types of capital as you have. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about overall at a very high level, what that experience has been like with investors and having a board, having that type of accountability and to some degree responsibility as well. Yeah, I think that having a board and having investors adds a whole new element to the business that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on you as a founder to make decisions that you may not otherwise would have made. Meaning your 89% growth or 90% growth or 100% growth isn't good enough. To some people, that would be a phenomenal year. But when you're backed by venture capitalists, that's like hitting a single. They need a grand slam. It's 300% or what are we doing here? There can be investors that don't have the patience as well, which is how they're running their business, which is all VCs. It's not, this is not a negative. It's just they have a fund that needs a payout in a certain amount of years. So they have that timeline and that agenda for the money that they've given you. Whereas for me, if I were just a founder with no VC backing, I would have a lot more patience because you know we grew 100% last year and going like, wow, that's great. Let's try to do that again this year. So it's just a different mentality. And so your patience is different. And therefore you have to sometimes make really big bets on your product. You almost are being forced to fail faster when you have VCs. One path would be you can actually survive, go slow, go slow, go slow, and you don't hit your inflection point until year six, year 10, year 15. Uh, whereas a VC can't afford that the way they run their business. They need you to either hit that inflection point next year or they need you to fail. So from some of the conversations that we've had in some of the Junto sessions, you've brought this topic up before, and I'd love for you to share what you have learned from having a board and having investors, how it is shaping you, how it has humbled you, how you've grown from just that dynamic. Yeah. So I think there's a couple things. One is a huge humbling experience for me was creating a sales forecast and then missing like every quarter for like a whole year, especially right after they gave me investment. And I just kept missing quarters and they're going like, what the heck? You know, I felt embarrassed because I, I was like, oh my gosh, they think I maybe misled them. I promise this is like a great business. It was a moment where I needed to step back and reflect on, okay, what really is happening with this business? Why is it not meeting its forecast? And switching my gears from being super optimistic about the business to being extremely critical. That bridges into the second point that I'm going to make, which is a huge piece in learning for me and having a board was transitioning myself from founder to CEO. A founder very much is someone who looks at a problem and says, okay, but here's the upside and here's how we're going to fix it. And here's how we're going to make it great. 
Whereas a CEO needs to look at a business and go, there's a problem. This is bad. This sucks. We got to change this. We got to adjust this and being much more critical of the business. And that doesn't come naturally to me. I even got feedback at one point from a board member that he said, stop selling to us. And I was, I was devastated. I was like, I'm not selling to you. And it took me about six months to figure out what he really meant. All he really meant was you need to transition yourself from founder to CEO. It finally clicked. It took a long time though. What other um, things have humbled you in your role as a leader beyond the board and investors and not hitting sales forecasts? I think really the hiring process has humbled me a lot. I am a very optimistic person. And when I started the company, I almost believed in everyone who I hired more than they believed in themselves. And I remember I have this outstanding woman who works for me and she does our data processing and I hired her and I remember her coming in and I wanted, I wanted her to get the job and interview well, more than she probably wanted it. And I ended up hiring her, of course, because I wanted her to get the job. Luckily it turned out really, really well. But what's humbled me is when I've made hiring decisions and they haven't worked out and having to figure out that I can't approach hiring as that everyone deserves the job first. And then they have to prove to me that they don't deserve it. And instead that they have to first prove to me that they deserve it. And again, it's just my optimistic way of looking at the world that has definitely humbled me. And once more, another step in that path from founder to CEO. I want to move over to something that we've spent a lot of time talking about in the last couple of years, which is uh, women, women in business, women leaders. Um, one thing I know about you is you're a big advocate for women in tech, mm-hmm. women in business. Uh, I've always appreciated that about you, the passion that you have. I know you're very involved in the community in that regard. You've been active with um, Junto Women, this new initiative that we've started. Mm-hmm. What experiences that can you share from your career? Because you've effectively been a, in a leadership role for most of it. What experiences can you share with other women that might be helpful to them? Yeah, I mean, I think the number one thing that you can do is to network, to network with other women and to network with men. It has really been men who have helped me become who I am today and women as well. But sometimes I think we kind of get into this rut of, hey, I'm a minority. And so I need to network with other women just so that we can have this rah-rah, hey, we're discriminated against and things aren't fair. And I think it is important to have a community of people where we can say, hey, I've tackled this problem before. Here's how I've handled it. And it's worked really well for me. But it's even more so important, though, to find the people outside of your core group who can help bring you along. And so having mentors, advisors who are men and are huge advocates of women is really, really important. And then what about the flip? So that that's sharing some of your experiences and tips for women. What do we as men need to know to be more effective at leading with women, leading women in general, being led by women? What can we do to be better at that? Because I think yeah. one thing that is we do as men is not critically think enough about that 
by asking women, but instead as men, just almost assuming that we might know. Yeah, I think it is just getting more familiar with the year unknowns. So for example, like a question that I was asked quite a bit when I was raising funding was if I planned on having children. I was very surprised by mm -hmm. that question because these men were planning on investing in Knowledge Hound or not, depending on if I planned on having children. And I didn't really understand why that was relevant. I think the reason why they ask is because it's such an unknown to them or they've seen their wives go through it or significant others go through it. And so they have a base size of one of how maybe that woman in their life handled or reacted to work and having a child. I think it's really just driving awareness for you to understand and better empathize with the woman that's sitting across the table from you. Just get to know her as a human and not necessarily about stereotypes that you may have. That's where it comes to understanding is to like, okay, well, what would your plans be? But then also like, you know, I had a, a male co-founder at the time when I was raising money, they didn't ask him if he was have, planning on having children. Mm -hmm. It is kind of like, you know, understanding are there major life events that you anticipate that could distract you from the business? I, I do think there is an assumption that sometimes women might have a baby and then the baby's number one and the business takes the back seat. And that's just not how a lot of us, especially founders, how we operate. Like it's just not in our DNA to just be this woman who now wants to stay at home and doesn't want to come back to work and doesn't want to plug back into email after two weeks of giving birth. I loved that question that you used to rephrase it. What major life events might you expect to have, yeah. which we can ask to men and women, yeah. right? And it doesn't right. cause that discomfort of right. pregnancies, children, et cetera. Right. I mean, do you plan on having knee surgery? Do you plan on, yeah, yeah. What do you do for your personal growth? What does your growth practice consist of? Although it's extremely painful, I learn by doing and just not being afraid to try to put things in motion and in practice. And then the second thing that I do is I network a lot. So I, I have coffee with mentors and advisors and board members and ask them for advice and work things out externally. That helps me in my personal development by learning from others. So it's very painful to do my approach, but I think it's really the only way that I learn at the maximum scale. And I know that you do kind of a combination of those two, because you, I remember at one point you led a group of entrepreneurs at uh, your church. Mm -hmm. I started a small group for entrepreneurs and we'd get together every week and talk about entrepreneurship and faith. And initiating that was very selfish for me because I knew I needed a place to find comfort and help and support. How do you bring that idea of faith to your work without it being religion? I'm very careful with that because one, I don't consider myself a religious person, even though I do attend church. One thing that I do, we have six values that our company is based in, and those values don't look anything different probably than what other companies, you know, it's like bias to action, customer obsessed, team first. But for me, they're very much rooted in the principles of my faith, which is respecting others and loving on people, just being a good human. And so I think that's a huge element that comes into, into business. The other place is just having an environment where people can come in and be their authentic selves and be accepting of that and celebrating everyone's differences. 
I love celebrating the diversity that we have on our team from gender diversity to sexual orientation to where they went to college. And to me, that's very much like a faith exercise too, in just loving on everyone. Thank you, Christy. That was a wonderful way for us to come to a close. Before we finish up, we're going to close out with a round of appreciations. Great. Do I get to go first? If you'd like. Yeah. So I came into this feeling very eager, which I'm still feeling eager, but I also feel calm. And I think it's because, Ramen, you're so like, I don't know, you're just a kind of like a Buddha in a sense. <laughs> just, <laughs> your calm voice and just reflecting and <laughs> all that is so nice. So I think this is just going to set me off to have a really great day. So I really appreciate that. Uh, I feel very uncomfortable now. <laughs> uh, that's not an emotion, so I gotta uh, check the emotion it's here. It's not. I no, think that's an emotion. I don't. I, I don't know. I, yeah, You're I feel shocked very, that I gave yes. you a compliment. Well, no, I'm not <laughs> shocked. I'm just uncomfortable. Thank you for the compliment. I appreciate your optimism. I know you. You mentioned that it's a part of you, but it's something I've always admired. That, and I've I've seen you and heard you go through some challenges. You've, you've shared several of them here today, but knowing that you continue to see the bright side, not just in business, but also in your life and in the world is inspiring to all of us as not just founders and entrepreneurs, but also as friends. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Is Executive VP of Sales at TradeRev, a revolutionary vehicle appraisal and auctioning system that has changed the way cars are sold in North America. Previously, Kane was co-founder and CEO of Driven, which was acquired by Car Auction Services in 2017. He's been a mentor at Junto since our start in 2013 and is highly regarded in both our community and throughout the country as a man of integrity, inspiring leadership, and personal attention. Kane was one of the first leaders I encountered who not only appreciated emotional intelligence, but more importantly, incorporated it into his leadership practices and philosophy. As you'll hear in our conversation, he's still working at that, knowing that growth is indeed a lifelong journey. Welcome, Kane. Thrilled to have you on this uh, episode of Flourishing Together. As we do with every single episode, we're going to kick things off with how you're feeling right now. It's, you know, I, I think an interesting time with a new job in a, in a new role that I've never done in a full-time capacity. So, you know, looking at the uh, emotional and feeling wheel here, I would say, you know, probably a combination of fear, nervous, anxious. You know, I think being stretched emotionally and psychologically and probably even physically to a degree with traveling and seeing clients and running a, a fairly sizable sales team nationwide, I, you know, there's a lot to be uh, anxious about there. So that's probably where I'm at right now. Thanks for sharing that. I'm feeling kind of enchanted and pleased for two reasons. Number one, just had an inspiring conversation with Christy Zalke for the episode. And then secondly, it's been, what, five almost six months since we've seen each other. Yeah. Uh, thrilled to, to see you. It's always good seeing you. So I want to kick things off with um, the first recollection that you have of leadership. As you reflect back on your life, whether it's childhood, or early adulthood, anywhere in between, what's the first uh, recall you have of leadership in action? Well, I mean, I think personally, I would say my dad. My dad was a, a blue-collar worker, but always had this 
he was a, he was an aspiring entrepreneur. He tried a lot of different things. Nothing that ended up being truly successful, and so he relied heavily on his full time job, as I like to say. So I probably saw signs there, but I would say in my professional career, it's probably honestly the first job out of college, working at the Burlington Co. Factory uh, at the corporate headquarters in Burlington, New Jersey. A gentleman by the name of Mike Prince, who was the CIO, and I was on the help desk. And he had this just amazing, captivating sort of leadership style. I still have not seen a leader like that to this day. And I remember he was truly the guy that I wanted to be. I said, you know, if I ever could really kind of handpick what I want to do in 20 years or 30 years, like I want to be Mike Prince. And funny story was I was in an award ceremony for CIO Magazine, and he presented me with the award by pure luck. He was being honored that evening and uh, found out that I was uh, being awarded, and he, he was actually was able to swing and give me the award as a complete surprise. Uh, and that was probably about 25 years after I had worked for him. It was a really neat reflective moment for me personally. You know, the style that he had and the thankfulness that he had towards the team and just the way he managed the team in a really, really complex, uh, tough environment. Retail is just, as you know, just very, very difficult. And um, I mean, a lot of lessons learned from him in a short period of time. Let's go further on that because, you know, you mentioned his thankfulness. Sounds like somebody who shares a lot of gratitude and has a lot of gratitude. What were some other traits of his that influenced you back then that have affected you as a leader? I mean, I think the thing that I remember, and, and you know, it's funny, as I was so young, and I probably didn't even appreciate it, but he would do call-outs in these large IT meetings. I mean, our IT team was probably, you know, 150, 200 people. And we would have these uh, department all meetings, and he would call out in particular efforts. I remember being very young and, and, and motivated in my career and wanting to be like one of those people that was called out, you know? And even as that didn't happen, it was a short period of time in my career, but it was really the launch pad into a lot of great things. And uh, I remember him coming over my desk one day and we were in a really, really tough spot. We had uh, lost a lot of great talent through just basically the, the market was very, very competitive at that point in time. And uh, he came over and he said, listen, you're going to be way over your head on this exercise, but I want you to do this. And I trust that you can get it done. And I remember looking at it thinking, I will, I will never be able to get that done. And I got it done. Not only did I get it done, but the company that I did it for um, complimented me to, to the point that it got up to him. And um, it was just a, it was a really neat, really neat experience. And I, um, I never thought at that point that I was going to be a leader, but a lot of the traits that he displayed are ingrained in the way I like to lead uh, my team. So along those lines, I know that you have a, a deep appreciation for emotional intelligence. And we've had a number of conversations uh, about it, and you know that it's a core part of what we do at, at Junto. How do you bring that consciously to your work, especially as a leader and as a manager? I won't pretend at all to be an EQ or a, you know an emotional intelligence expert, but I, what I will say is... I think the thing that I bring and that I try to get through to the team is being self-aware. And when I say self-aware, I mean self-aware at the 30,000 foot level. And then basically you can break that down level by level. And it's being empathetic. It's being in a conference room and, and seeing that the meeting is not going the direction that it should and having to say something or do something or be that spark that changes the dynamic. 
It's really interesting when you look at people that aren't self-aware and that are just really sort of checked out of the situation, what you have to do to change behavior and how you might even have to change yourself to get that spark. And so really being self-aware, and I mean, being empathetic. Uh, when somebody's having a tough day, well, why are you having a tough day? What's going on? You know, how can I help you? And I think as leaders, we have to wear different hats every day. Sometimes we have to be the boss. Sometimes we have to be the friend. I work with a very young generation. Sometimes I have to be like, it feels like their father or their brother. Sometimes you just got to take them out for a drink if that's what they're into and just, you know, get off the record or off the grid. And as I've grown older, I've appreciated much more of the people that I meet. I'm very clued in now on the people that have high EQ and my appreciation towards those people. Where I think earlier in my career, I don't think I appreciated that at all. You know, I think you have great EQ. I think you and I, in the sense of in a, in a meeting setting, can pick up what's going on by body language or verbal tone or why is he sitting that way? I mean, there's a lot of different things. It's not just even what people say. It's a lot of display as well. I, I just, I don't know. I have, I have great admiration, great appreciation for those that are really clued in and that have a high understanding of, of EQ. For you personally, was there a turning point? I imagine like most things, it was an evolution, but you, you referred to earlier in your career. So as you reflect back, was there a period where you think things started to accelerate or change faster in terms of your appreciation for that in others? And secondly, in your own abilities, just your own awareness of your emotional intelligence, even though you may not have used that language, that consciousness of your self-awareness. You know, I don't, I don't know where, I can't say that I know like a specific time in my career that it happened, but I can tell you that when I interview people, I've never looked at a resume. I've never brought even a resume into the room. You know, I'll read a resume and I, I like to know like what is a person's background and maybe what drives them. But in an interview for me, it's really like, it's to really get to know the person and feel like, why, why is the person in front of me? Are they... And it's not selling me. It's not like we're past that point, right? I mean, in, in later in my career, it's like, you know, all the pre-interviews have been done. It's really for me to meet the person. So I really like to like, I like to use EQ in that setting or just to really kind of feel the person out a little bit. But I don't know where in my career, but I remember, I do vividly remember at Allstate in particular, in, in a very challenging time in my career, working with a, a bit of an older generation, I'd say like a tenured generation that was on a pension and working in a, an environment that was heavy with ambiguity and um, not a lot of structure at the time. And we were doing things that were sort of unprecedented for that type of company. And I remember coming home and talking to my wife a lot about like, how do I, how do I get to know these people? Or how do I connect with these people? I had to learn a lot. I mean, I, I really truly had to learn a lot about working with a demographic or working with people that I wasn't used to working with in my career. And so picking up every day was different. Picking up signals and picking up things that were motivating the team or unmotivating the team and how I fit in and even overcoming this age sort of gap. You know, I had to I had to really had to change a lot of different things. And I think that's where I think EQ became important to me was really being empathetic to the team was handed to me. What can I do with it now? You might not have the skill set, but what can we do to make sure that you feel included and inclusive and, and everything else and part of the team? And the other thing is, it's not something that you can master. That's what I've also appreciated about it. There is a, there's a great term that I learned a while back. It says leaders are always under construction. And I think with that part of leadership in particular is 
you're never, I don't think you're ever going to be a master of it. I think there's always stuff to learn. So we've known each other about eight or 10 years. You've been a mentor with Junto uh, our entire six-year history. And in that time, we've had a lot of conversations, not just about Junto and me, but also about you and the different uh, roles and positions you've held. Uh, and I know you've been through some pretty challenging roles mm-hmm. and some pretty challenging situations. Would love to be, for you to pick out maybe one or two humbling moments that you've experienced as a leader. I mean, by far and away, the one that I will tell a lot of audiences, and it took me a long time. I mean, it took me, God, probably 10 or 12 or maybe even 15 years past the actual event to even talk about this. But it was weird. It wasn't because I was embarrassed. I think it was because I didn't know how to really explain it. And that was taking a job at eToys in 97 in, in the middle of this crazy dot-com boom. And I just got married and moved my wife at the time out to California. And I was working 90 hours a week. We took the company public and started, I think, working 100 hours a week. I was literally sleeping in the office like six, seven days a week. I mean, no, no weekends. I mean, it was just work. And I remember I came to this critical point where, you know, my, my wife said, you know, it's got, it's kind of like me or it's, it's the company. And I remember saying, I, it's the company. Like, I, I got to do this. I got to see this through. It was, a, it was, I mean, as you can imagine, like that's a, that's a bad decision. I was very young and that company went bankrupt two years later. And, you know, I stuck through the bankruptcy and went through the, the whole process. We ended up getting divorced and, um, you know, it wasn't obviously pleasant by any stretch of the imagination. And I remember it always seemed like the right decision until I really did a lot of reflection on myself and went back and looked and said, God, like, that was a horrible decision, you know, like, and could both work realistically. And I don't think it could have. I tell a lot of people that story only because there's a lot of more important things out there than work. And it was humbling to me in the sense of, I think I'm a better person for going through it. And I think there's a lot of education, not only for me, but education that I can, that I tell a lot of people out there of have, have a work-life balance, have balance in your, in your life in general. So that's one to me. And and I could, we could have a whole nother podcast on that whole situation because it was, uh, it was a psychological sort of nightmare, as you can imagine. You know, I think the other one was, I would say humbling maybe on the good side was, I think the acquisition of Driven it was very weird in the sense of that we, we, we built a company and we sold the company, but it never ever through the transaction felt kind of like real. Like we, we weren't driven by the money. We weren't driven by the sense that it was getting acquired. We were excited about the company. And it was humbling for me to be in a co-founder position, tell the team, this is what we're going to do. And you do it. You tell the team, like, remember the outcome that we sort of promised. It happened a little bit faster than we thought, but we did it. And I just remember like celebrating and (laughs) I wish I could have bottled up that moment of time because it'd be fun to go back and open that can up or that bottle up and be able to reflect on that over, you know, a 10, 15, 20, 50 year experience because it was really like, it was a lot of fun. It wasn't fun for me, honestly. It was fun for me, but it was really fun for the employees, watching the employees. People have put in a lot of hard work just to see like them have a resume builder and be more marketable or have skill sets that they came in with uh, or that they didn't come in with that they left with. There's just a lot of enjoyment around that. Two really good ones. And I appreciate you uh, bringing up a positively humbling experience because most of the time- I know humbling can be negative. 
deemed negative, but I think that there can be humbling in the sense of positive as well. So one thing that you have shared very consistently and that I've appreciated deeply, um, and we tend to hear it a lot from our mentors, is that you learn more from the mentoring process than you feel like you give to those who you're mentoring. And would love to hear from you some thoughts on what you've learned about yourself from mentoring both in general, because I know you do it you know, well beyond Junto, but then also within our mentoring process. So kind of using both of those as jumping off points, what, what have you learned about yourself? What have you discovered about who you are, both as a man and as a leader from being a mentor? It's funny because I remember, I remember doing music dealers, uh, the first mentoring session I think I've ever done with that I had ever done with Junto. I remember being around the table with some really, really amazing people. Like that was a really fun, uh, fun cohort or fun class, you know, just some really talented leaders. And I remember sitting there saying, why am I here? Like, what am I going to add to this? And, and being actually super anxious going to those meetings, actually kind of scared to a degree. And, and when you spoke up, like the room was on you, the spotlight was on you to add value to those meetings. And it took me probably that whole year to like really feel confident. So I think there was like a confidence builder and, and to be able to like actually take a lot of that back to work and feel like, you know, I, I, yeah, I jumped in the deep end of the pool, but I can, I can, maybe I can doggy that. I'm not swimming yet. I think I'm going to hang. And then I think as, as we went forward, the confidence just built up. I think the great thing about Junto is it's the way it's structured is that nobody can really dominate the meeting. It's, it's a very well-balanced session for the most part. And, and I love that because that's honestly, it really sort of ties into your second question, which is learning. You think that, you know, you might be an expert in whatever you're there to add, but then you get the person that has a completely different role and it comes out of left field with this idea or this thought or this question. I think that is really the power. And this goes down back to what I've told you numerous times is, you know, you take 10 pages of notes and maybe three pages are really relevant to the meeting that you want to go back and think about. The seven pages are relevant to your day to day. And that I would take back to the team and I'd say, hey guys, like, listen, we've never thought about it this way. or We've never looked at it this way. Or, hey, check this out. Like they drew this on the whiteboard. This is really relevant to what we're doing. I always thought about the time that you put in and the time that you get out. I think I personally benefited from a lot. The, the, the growth for the company going through it is tremendous. The growth for the mentors, all the mentors, regardless of those that were very senior in their roles or you know those that might have been relatively new to leadership um, and that had a shot at getting into Junto to be a mentor, I think everybody learned. That, that is really, truly the power of the exercises that we all go through together. So speaking of growth, what do you do for yourself on a regular basis to uh, grow? Again, personally or professionally, uh, what's your growth practice? Do you have something that's structured, formal? Is it more informal, unstructured? I would love to be the guy that wakes up at 5 a.m. every morning and reads inspirational quotes and, you know, does all the stuff from five to six. It's just, I am, I'm not that guy, mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately. Whatever's driving me for that specific week, it might be a podcast. And then honestly, like, I think as I've gotten past 40, um, it's taking care of myself, right? I mean, I think exercise. And that is one thing that, you know, I am, I, I have stayed fairly regimented on is being active. Non-activity is what changes the mood. It changes the body. It changes the frame of mind. So just trying to stay active. 
What other books have you read recently that you really appreciated and would recommend? The one I've been talking about the most is uh, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work by Jason Fried. And mainly because it really, truly makes you think about the way we operate our businesses and the cultures that we have sort of created over and over and over again. And because we think it's right that it should be applied to every other company that we work in. And I, and I actually put it in front of our leadership team at the company I'm at now and said, I think this is something we should look at. I think this is the, we should challenge ourselves and to be thinking differently and maybe not looking at every single chapter. And, but I think there's so many different little tidbits of information there that are really powerful. Well, thanks, Kane. We're going to close with a round of appreciations. I've really enjoyed the eight to 10 years with you. Um, I don't know what the exact number is, but I think we met actually before Junto and then got really hooked up at, at Junto. And, you know, I, I think for me, as, as I said earlier, you know, you put in the time, but what you get back is twofold. You really do. And whether it's through the alumni and the network that you build, or it's the, the people that you, you work nine months with, or it's the actual companies and the people I've stayed connected with in the companies, you know, and friends that I've made. And it's, you know, it's never really been for, it's fun. It's never been for monetary purposes. It's never been for uh, self-promoting purposes. It's honestly been learning. That's the fun power of this whole thing. You've done a great job with it. And I appreciate your support. You have been incredibly supportive and a strong advocate for Junto since day one. As much as I've probably appreciated in the past, I probably haven't done so in this way where it's one-to-one that it has meant a lot to me. Uh, you have offered your time beyond just the mentor meetings. You've told me that you're willing to allocate a certain half day or day every so often. And that has meant a lot because you've held some pretty intensive positions and roles during the time we've known each other. And I know how big of a commitment that is. I know that you've got a young, growing family. I know that you travel a lot. And so to me, the, the most valuable currency we always have at this stage of our lives is our time. And to know that you are willing to provide that and even promise that into the future, not even knowing what the future holds, uh, means a lot. So thank you. Every time I prepare for one of our episodes, I take notes during the interviews review them after, listen to the raw footage, exchange thoughts with our podcast agency, and then get my notes ready for my commentary and introductions. It seems that each time I do that, I think to myself, this is going to be the best episode so far. The truth is, they're all the best. I'm fortunate to be around such incredible people like Christy and Kane on a daily basis that I consider them all to be the types of people who would make these podcast episodes the best. I love the line that Kane shared, leaders are always under construction. It so effectively captures the idea of personal and professional growth, not only as a desire, but as a necessity. And it resonates with me because it's so visual. I can see the yellow diamond-shaped sign providing a cautionary warning to myself and to everyone who sees it that we're always under construction, both as leaders and as human beings. We're filling in our potholes depending on the role that we're in, depending on the people that we're around. We're smoothing out the rough edges. We're filling in the cracks of our foundations, building a new addition through skills and experiences and extending our roadways through new journeys. Each time we read a new book, we discover new lands that cause us to build a bridge to get us there. When we get candid feedback from the people we lead about how we can become better, we pull out our toolkit or search for better tools. 
and when we fail miserably by saying or doing things that we wish we did or didn't, we go back to our blueprints and take a look at how our self-design failed. I believe the most important word in that line, leaders are always under construction, is always. The reason I believe that is because no matter how experienced we are or how many leadership roles we've been in, we're just never able to achieve anything close to perfection. Leaders are always under construction implies that every single leadership situation we're in, even if it's with the same people, is different and therefore requires a different approach, skill set, language, and or behaviors. The line also humbles us. By using the word always, it reminds us that no matter how effectively we're leading at any given point in time, no matter what our accomplishments are, no matter how positively our team members think about us, the word always reminds us that we must continue to build our capabilities and competencies. It so effectively illuminates why, at Junto, we're fortunate to have dozens of seasoned professionals like Kane Grau who return year after year after year to be mentors. These are accomplished founders, entrepreneurs, and executives who have not only started and grown companies, but many have had successful exits, realizing financial windfalls that sometimes changes their lives and that of their families. And when they return as mentors, they tell us that they're doing it for selfish reasons, that despite the give back of mentorship and the good feelings that accompany it, they continue to discover what they don't know and how they can continue getting better as leaders. And so by using this line as a mantra, leaders are always under construction. It helps our self-awareness grow, which is the fundamental component of building emotional intelligence. I'm often asked what types of leaders we look for at Junto. My answer almost always incorporates two critical elements. First, a heightened level of self-awareness that they don't know at all. And second, that what got them here won't get them there. It's another way of saying that we're always under construction. And it's important to underscore that this line doesn't just apply to us as leaders, but also as human beings. After all, each one of us is always under construction. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode. This episode was produced by Dante32.